This is Ozarks at Large. Thanks for being with us. You can listen to us on your schedule, by the way, when you subscribe to our free podcast edition of the show through any major podcast distributor. Earlier this month, the annual gathering of the groups, a collection of Northwest Arkansas-based book clubs, took place at the Fayetteville Public Library with author and artist Nate Powell as the guest speaker. Powell, along with Andrew Aiden and the late Congressman John Lewis, created the National Book Award-winning series of graphic novels, March, about the life of Congressman Lewis. Powell, an Arkansas native who now lives in Indiana, is the first cartoonist to receive the National Book Award. Nate Powell sat down with me in the new event center at the library for a conversation and to take questions from the audience. Yesterday, we heard about how the project began. Today, we continue our conversation as Nate Powell explains how working on the project provided foreshadowing about some of the conversations we're having in 2021. He says a visit to his local comic shop in Bloomington, Indiana years ago was a preview of conflicts to come. The owner was like, oh yeah, hey, I got to tell you something. There is this middle school librarian who came up from southern Indiana to to buy some books for school and she was there for a three-day weekend and uh, you know I was helping her out and stuff basically by the end of the second day she had never mentioned or picked up a copy of March book one she came in the third day and so the the shop owner was like oh yeah have you heard of this book March blah 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 and basically the librarian stopped him and was like, oh, I know, but if I put, if I get March and I put that on my shelves, I will get enough parental complaints that I may get fired. And up until that instant, there was a part of me that took for granted that because this was a first-person nonfiction historical account about nonviolence in the civil rights movement, I thought that it checked off so many boxes that were unassailable um, that there was a, to a large degree, I saw the project as being generally uncontroversial. And so I had interest in drawing out other elements and, and sort of expanding on the conflict brewing within the movement which we all shared that and we all developed that over the course of March books two and three. But how wrong was I as soon as we started hearing about basically like the, the concerns of gatekeepers in a positive way, the positive gatekeepers, the librarians, the teachers, the bookstore owners, and recognize that there are people that make books like March influential and successful because they put themselves at varying degrees of risk to stick their neck out for those books. Uh, and that was a real game changer for how we approached the material and what we needed to do to protect it. What a great place to hear that story too in this library. You bet. It's the responsibility that you and Mr. Aiden had with Congressman Lewis's life, I can't imagine as you're creating this. Did you have conversations, the three of you, about the sheer responsibility of telling this story? I, I don't think we really explicitly focused or, or really commiserate. I mean, Andrew and I have certainly spent <laughs> right. years, uh, yeah, propping each other up and commiserating about that and how to do our best work and how to protect the legacy of John Lewis's story, but also how to protect the legacy of the movement. But 
with Congressman Lewis concerned, uh, a lot of it was by developing trust early on. Um, like the public, the public persona of John Lewis is who John Lewis was. And he really, I, I'm very thankful that he is someone, he was someone who immediately put me at ease, someone who does not make assumptions uh, preemptively, uh, and someone who, who gives you space to try, fail, try. But uh, especially during more difficult passages or when I really feel the pressure of getting it right, I would really, or, or even questioning my own role as, as the artist to make this happen, I would repeatedly have to come back around to embracing that John Lewis chose me to tell his story through his eyes and in his words. My, he chose me to do that job. And so a lot of the anxiety that would come with, you know, the pressures and responsibilities of the job is really, so much of that is, you know, just kind of like trying to make it about me. And so it was a really good centering thing to be like, this is not about me. This is about me doing this job the best that I can do it. Like, it's not like, who cares how I feel, but right. yeah, who cares? Like, <laughs> this is the job I signed up for. It has nothing to do with me. When I was a kid, there, were, there was this uh, line of comic books called Classics Illustrated. Oh, yeah. All right, so they would take Moby Dick or Tale of Two Cities, and they would, you know, I guess the idea was make it more palatable for yeah. an eight or nine-year-old like me. It's like Dell or Charlton comics. I, yeah. yeah, Charlton, I think, right. The one thing about those is it was very formal artwork. Beautiful, detailed, but it felt still away from me, like I was detached. This is anything but. This is warm. This is welcoming and takes you in. And is that something you consciously think about? Because you want this history to live with an eight or nine or 10-year-old reader. Do you think about that? Yes, actually, Classics Illustrated was, was sort of at the forefront of that... <laughs> that uh, concern I was talking about that was early on uh, about what would make this yeah, a dry nonfiction account of history. Um, so yeah, a lot of those were done during the 1950s and into the 60s. So they were done in the what's known as the Silver Age of Comics, um, <laughs> which produced such beautiful, graceful work, but was really defined by using a six-panel grid with a lot of regularity, with caption text at the top of every panel, with text first, then image. And so like real, this is where we're about to get into some Marvel Comics business here. <laughs> this is really where Jack Kirby, Stan Lee, Steve Ditko helped destroy that dominance of text. I mean, not, not completely, but really helped make more of a dance between word and image in comics in the 1960s. Uh, so, yeah, Martin Luther King and the Montgomery Story was made in 1956, and it's a, just such a beautiful, graceful book. But at the same time, it is very much a 1950s house-style book. Um, so, yes, like, those were basically just examples floating around where I knew that if one reason why I 
I was lucky enough to draw March was because of my storytelling style, I needed to embrace the way I already drew comics instead of trying to make March something uh, that was not the way I would already do a book. So uh, particularly in March book one, because so much of it is of subjective experiences and is of sensory impressions and sense memories, like that's my wheelhouse anyway. Like most of, most of my solo books, most of my fiction work is really focused on an intimate perspective to someone's very subjective experiences and perceptions. So once I realized that, yes, it was possible and appropriate to step into young John Lewis's shoes and look around his world through his eyes, I would naturally draw comics in the way that I had, in, in a way I had developed over many years. And, and it helped that like, when I was, like a lot of this starts when John Lewis is like six. And when I was reading his memoir, Walking with the Wind, 20 pages in, I was, I was so struck by the gravity and intensity with which he viewed the world around him. And one reason was because when I was six, uh, I viewed the world with precisely that same level of gravity and intensity. Uh, also, like the ditches and woods and stuff where I used to play were a quarter mile from one end of the old Troy Highway. And his house was on the other end of the old Troy Highway, 47 miles away. But I felt like I felt this there's a sense of time travel. Like, I know what grass is there. I know what trees are there. I know what the road and the dirt are going to look like. Uh, it was just a really optimal way to ease into someone else's shoes. Is it at all difficult to draw violence or someone using a racial epithet against someone that you know was real or someone you may have met? Is that a challenge to draw? Yes, yes, it, uh, it takes its toll. Uh, it's, uh, it's interesting, I guess, to talk about the physical violence first. Again, this is something that I didn't think out fully before I started drawing March book one. And this includes, I basically like, uh, I did a book immediately before March called The Silence of Our Friends, which is also mostly a nonfiction account of the writer's life as a kid outside of Houston in the mid-60s against a backdrop of a chapter of civil rights movement history. Um, and a lot of the same issues and themes are approached. That was different, however. Uh, I, 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 was, I wasn't holding myself as accountable to the reference and research I should have been, which I was later for March. But as a comic book reader, like as a comic book nerd, I'm really, I'm really familiar and comfortable with visual depictions of physical violence through comics. And in fact, I'd say that American superhero comics and the ways in which physical violence and conflict are depicted have sort of set the the ways in which it's approached across pop culture at large. I think a lot of the, the storytelling methods uh, and a lot of the framing, a lot of the directorial aspects that are in movies and TV 
and animation, a lot of it really goes back to Jack Kirby. Like it, so much of it just comes from mid-century American comics. And I took so much of that for granted until finally there, yeah, there's a real, a real person and a real face um, at the other end of that fist. Um, and so ultimately it was one of these things where, you know, I would develop phys you know, physical repulsion at having to draw a lot of acts of violence. Um, and I'd spend a lot of time thinking about, you know, some of the more disturbing moments. And thankfully, I think that that process really resensitized me to depictions of violence. And a lot of that coincides with becoming a dad and the ways in which your brain changes in parenthood. And like, so around, yeah, around 2012, like I started losing my appetite for my beloved horror genre in movies and TV. And, uh, and uh, a lot of that initially was due to parenthood and changes happening in my brain. But that really, the door really closed on it doing March books two and three. Uh, and a lot of it is like, again, I've got a job to do, and so I need to find ways to get it done, but I also need to listen to my own voice. If I'm being horrified and repulsed by this act of violence on the page, even though I'm directing it, I know what I'm doing and I'm making it happen, then I'm doing something right because I'm, re I'm reintroducing the repulsive nature of violence, particularly coming from the context of not even realizing how desensitized I was to its depictions throughout my entire life. Um, and so, yeah, every time that I would get that feeling, uh, what I would take away from it was that, you know, there are certain parts of March which, if I do my job correctly, should be taken as horror. Uh, and so there are moments like, in particular, the Montgomery Greyhound bus station uh, massacre riot in March book two. That was, that was very difficult to draw. Uh, and a lot of it is like, you know, reminding myself of my place, like how difficult, you know, like if I think it's difficult to draw, like who am I to even express that when I'm sitting here in 20... 13 in my cozy chair drawing it. Um, but it sort of like reactivates this very human perspective on not only the victims of violence, but the perpetrators. Uh, one of the panels that messed me up the most in drawing March was from that scene in Montgomery in March book two. There is, there was a three or four year old boy who was there with his parents attacking the Freedom Riders. And Jim Zwerg had already been knocked unconscious by the dad, but the dad was holding unconscious Jim Zwerg's head between his knees and mom and dad were encouraging their four year old kid to scratch and claw at his face and eyes. And, uh, and, you know, as I was like powering through and drawing the sequence, you know, like you can't help but to think, who is this kid? This is a real kid. These are his real parents. Like this, you know, this kid would be, this kid was born in 1958 or 57. 
this kid would be in his early 60s now, be like, he might no longer be with us. He's probably still alive. So if he is, then you're like, what does he remember of this moment? Has he blocked it out? Um, if he hasn't, what, what has he carried with him? What does he remember about his parents? And what, what does he remember about his parents in the context of this moment? Does he, you know, carry a lot of stuff, a lot of baggage against his parents? Or does he not? Like, there's no way, and it's kind of inappropriate to like pry further to get to any answers about that. But it's just horrifying once you recognize that this three-year-old, this four-year-old is somebody who's still with us out there today. Um, in March book one, when we're getting to the murderers of Emmett Till being uh, let off the hook and then because of double jeopardy laws, confessing to the murders in an interview for Look Magazine, uh, I was doing my own backup research uh, outside of the research that I was given, uh, and then I realized that one of the, one of the three murderers uh, owned an auto garage in a town in Kentucky where my wife's extended family lived, and that he was 96 years old, at the time. Um, but then like, it was just horrifying to recognize this guy's still alive. I can find his business. I know where his business is. I know the town already where he lives. And he definitely 100% murdered this 14-year-old kid and got away with it publicly. Um, so like, yeah, these, the, these are the moments where you just have to kind of like pet your cat <laughs> right. and like eat a snack and then just recognize, like it's been a long process of like figuring out care practices to be able to, to do the best work you can do. Read these if you haven't. Read anything with Nate Powell's name on it. Congratulations on the well-deserved awards through your career. Thanks for even if temporarily coming back to Arkansas. And thank you Bet. for your time this afternoon. Always happy to be and here. thank you all for coming. Thanks, y'all. Nate Powell is one of the co-creators of the National Book Award winning series of graphic novels, March each about the life of Congressman John Lewis. He spoke to the annual gathering of the groups at the Fayetteville Public Library earlier this month.